What's up, guys, and welcome back to an ep another episode here on the Architect Network podcast. Today, we have our 39th podcast, and we've invited Yan Bung to talk to us about the convergence of technology in the Viz industry and far beyond. Uh, so Yan is a director at Squint Opera, uh, and he spent a number of years in the Viz industry, but he has this really interesting overview of the industry as a whole. And actually, one of the reasons I invited him on this podcast was he recently published a little paper called Feeding the Machines of Love and Grace. <clears throat> and it's a really nice synopsis of what is going on in the Viz industry and some of the things that we need to think about in the future. Uh, I think it really summarizes a lot of the things that were on my mind and what a lot of other future thinking architects have on their minds. Uh, I definitely recommend maybe pausing the video here for five minutes, read through it. It's eight pages. It's a really beautiful read. Uh, but of course, we're going to jump into a lot of these topics during the podcast. As always, if you enjoy this, give us a like and a subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram where we're posting uh, upcoming courses and, and future guests that we're going to have, as well as you can go right now to architect.network and check out our online courses. Right now, we have our Grasshopper Master Plan online right now. But without any further ado, let's jump into the podcast and have a chat with Yan. All right, we are live. So, Yan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, very excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited yeah. too. Awesome. So, to give a little bit of the audience a uh, a brief introduction to the one I've already done. I'll just uh, kind of give them a little bit more of a flavor of your background. So, uh, Jan, you're a, you're a, uh, you originally kind of trained as a landscape architect, right? And uh, then transitioned to an urban designer. And you then eventually kind of found your way into the world of, of visualization. And you're now a director at Squint Opera. And you're also a director of Spaceform, which we'll talk a little bit uh, more about later on. I also thought on your on your LinkedIn there's a good kind of way to also summarize uh, yourself is you're 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 a great networker of of people and I think um, I think there's a, a a line where it says uh, your network keeps you up to date with the latest technology industry trend, trends which you bring back in house pushing the boundaries of of Squint's work I thought that was also a great summary of <laughs> of who you are. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you want to add anything to it, but, um, I thought it'd be really interesting to start off by just talking about your journey to Squint from being like a, you know, a, a landscape architect, an urban designer. Um, how did your journey to Squint, uh, begin, so to speak? Mm. And, and your interest in, uh, I guess in the Viz side of it, or as we, we just talked about, it's really the communication side of the AEC industry. Yeah. Yeah, it's a definitely a somewhat unusual CV, I guess. You know, my my first company actually was a demolition business before <laughs> I started studying landscape architecture. Um, when I was, I think, I enrolled when I was twenty three, and um, back then, I really did not think it through a lot. I just went to the university and I thought I really have to study now. And I, I read the kind of summary page at the, in the lobby of the technical university in Berlin. And I literally started at a, to figure out what I could study. And, and <laughs> we did some demolition work, um, 
outdoors and there were lots of landscape gardeners around and I always found them extremely nice people kind of working with yeah. stones and plants and nature and just very grounded kind of people and 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 so when I when I ended up at L and I read the short description for landscape architecture and it had all these things like you know all these different scales designing you know from object to regions and a bit of sociology and a bit of biology and design and 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 it kind of read 80 percent uh, interesting at the time and and, and I enrolled and, and very very quickly um, became very passionate about it because it really felt like um, something I I started to care more and more about this idea that you know we could create some sort of almost like a framework or or, or an empty shelf or, or or structures for for people to to be um, and and as a landscape architect you obviously always work kind of in between the buildings so you know shortly after I, I finished uh, studying I, I I started working a little bit um, with Martha Schwartz and and she allowed me really to um, explore a lot of you know much larger scale uh, master plan projects and and at the same time. I did set up a, a landscape architecture studio in Berlin with a bunch of friends. And um, when, I mean, you know this very well from architecture, but I guess the, the higher you go in scale, the in, a, in, a, in the master plan world, we, uh, we end up working on, on schemes for a bunch of years. And then mm. it might take, take 10 years or 15 years before anything happens really. Yeah. Um, and, and so, it became very obvious that you could kind of have the best idea in the world, you know, if you didn't manage to communicate it right, most likely yeah, your project yeah. wouldn't go anywhere. It wouldn't survive <laughs> these, these pressures. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And, and so, yeah, that, I guess where, you know, while I was still working as a landscape architect, I very strongly, you know, felt that two, there, there were two moments that where communication was super important. The, the first one was, to win a project. So in, in Germany, if you, if you have a studio in Germany, you're basically a competition architect because the only way to win work or the main way to win work is through public competitions. And, yeah. Yeah. and these are open competitions. So, so it's, it is really all about, I mean, A, you have to have a great design and a great solution for the, for the brief. But at the same time, I believe it's very much about how you actually present your work. And yeah, how you communicate yeah. it, and then once you manage to secure a job, communication suddenly is really important to just keep everybody aligned and and to keep the division alive, because yeah. as you know, at some point later on the line, there's a lot of pressures that you know people want to cut budgets and uh, timelines and uh, make compromises, and and if you don't have a strong narrative that describes your vision, then you don't have much to, you know, fight for or stand on. Yeah. And so it's, it's a really good point, actually, because I don't, I think at, at school, like, at, you know, studying architecture, you're kind of informally taught it, but it's, it's not, no one's really teaching you how to storytell or, or to communicate. Actually, it's, it's like, it's just all focus on the design and, and learning to design. Okay. Which obviously makes sense, but um, it was actually one one of the mistakes I made at uni was like 
I just work and work and work and crazy. And, and we had a final submission and, you know, worked till something ridiculous, like two, three in the morning, presenting at 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning. And I hadn't even thought about this, the, what I was going to say. And <laughs> you're just standing no. there wrecked. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, that's no. definitely something that's become more apparent as I've, you know, been working in the industry. I mean, I, I do sometimes teach, or I used to teach, um, you know, in, in Berlin, and now I, I sometimes you know, join people, friends who are teaching, um, and they mainly get me in to talk about exactly that point. Mm. And, 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 and I feel there's two things that we're doing wrong. I mean, there's a lot of things we're doing wrong in architecture education, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe, maybe three things. I will just focus on three things. I mean, one, I feel um, we're not really doing students a, a great service if we don't teach them to collaborate with the, dis the other disciplines. Because later in mm -hmm. in the in the real world, you have to on a daily basis work with architects and uh, developers yeah. and city administrations, and 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 often we don't even teach them the language. And so, so students don't really understand the pain points of an engineer or, or of a real estate developer or, or of a city. And, and I think it's really a wasted opportunity. You know, it's such a, there's very few courses, I think on this planet where there's a truly integrated approach. And I mean, maybe to highlight a good example, you know, I think at, at the GSD at Harvard, you know, the, 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 the project work, is always structured in a way that an architect, an engineer, and a landscape architect has to work together, and they they, they are all working on one project, um, you know, yeah, over over the, over the semester. And I think that helps. You know, it's the first step. So to this kind of fostering an understanding across disciplines while you're studying, I think would be a good idea to focus on. And then the the second one, you know, is uh, Absolutely, you know, communication help help uh, architects and designers to actually. <laughs> I think that you know, the, at Squint, you know, we have this very clear understanding that you know the the last thing people want to connect with, or or the most difficult thing to connect is kind of conceptual diagrams and and you know conceptual ideas in general, and they're often very complex mm -hmm. and, and and really, yeah. um, you know, yeah, just quite quite large and quite difficult to digest. And, and so if you don't have a compelling narrative and you, you know, you cannot tell a great story that excites people, then, you know, you're off to a, to a bad start. And, and now the, the last thing that, you know, I always end up, um, you know, in uh, discussing with, with architects and, and, and people who are teaching um, architecture, at universities, you know, the, the last thing I'm convinced of that's missing is we really also have to teach students to understand the economics of the business, you know, because yeah, yeah. I find it very frustrating that, you know, we, we, as, 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 as designers, you, you are, you're providing a service to, to a client and this client might be a public client or might be a private client, but if you don't understand how your client makes money and, and, and where yeah. the pain points 
uh, for them and, and, you know, what they are worried about, then, you know, you will not provide the right service in the end. And, and, and I, I understand, you know, the worry in architecture education that, you know, you want, don't want students to focus on, you know, just the commercial side and so on. But right now, it's impossible to bring this up in many architecture schools. Like this is the evil, yeah. you know, don't yeah. mention money, you know, you yeah. can't, you know, it's just impossible. And, and that's just wrong. You know, you, you, I mean, you have yeah. to at least be able to talk about it and then people ca can make their own decisions. Yeah. And I think it gets, it gets more interesting when you add that and like the business side and, and, you know, I've, we've talked a lot in, on this podcast about, you know, a lot of what you see at university are sometimes really interesting ideas and projects, but then they just, you know, that you design things for a portfolio, but what if you could come out and turn that idea into a, a business and understanding that business side or, you know, entrepreneurship and raising money and stuff like that could be Absolutely. really beneficial for architects and, you know, and students in general to go out and with an idea, a business idea rather than a flashy portfolio kind of thing. Yeah, a hundred percent. And then, and then on top of that, and, you know, just to close this topic off, maybe, you know, there is, you know, as you said, you can even go a bit further where nowadays, if we are dealing with these highly complex projects that, you know, often have a component of, you know, whatever energy or mobility or, you know, things beyond, you know, just designing objects, you know, they're performance related or lifespan related or material related. Um, you know, what if we could use those projects almost as pilot or test cases to, to try out new products and, and services and then have some sort of pipeline where we can incubate ideas. And some studios are doing that, I think, you know, started doing that. Yeah. And, and I think it's definitely where, where it's going. It's definitely a reoccurring theme that keeps uh, popping up on this podcast. But yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's so you kind of started to develop this interest in in the communication side and the storytelling side, and that's I yes. assume when you went over to Squint Opera. I also assume you're in Germany at that time, and then did you come over to Squint? You came over to London and and uh, started to join was, the Squint team. It was a bit more messy than that. It, it is uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> so I had a so I I, I used to have a studio. A landscape architecture studio, uh, which, which still exists, called Treibhaus, in in Berlin, in, in Germany, uh, together with uh, uh, three friends, and um, we never really managed to make enough work to sustain or uh, to make enough money to sustain all of us, and so yeah. we all had to teach on the side, and we, we most of us had to have a little side job as well, and yeah. so because of um, the fact that I, I did my internship at Martha's, um, she, you know, once in a while um, asked me to come and, and work on projects with her, which allowed me to, you know, get exposed to a different scale and, and a different kind of project, but also it allowed me to just have a much more international exposure. And, 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 and one of the projects that um, Martha was working on at the time was like, like 12, 13 years ago um, was in, in Damascus in Syria and, and mm -hmm. me working on this project in a, at the early stages um, really got me excited about um, working in, in Damascus in Syria because 
honestly the it was a it was a massive challenge you know to to, to work as a landscape architect in in this part of the world at the time because they they had just realized that you know the there's a need to to think maybe a bit more you know broadly about um you know public realm and and urban design and and this this you know syria and i mean the whole region is you know arguably quite engineering driven and and when i when i when i um um first started going to syria the university of damascus was had just started the first year of an urban design course that didn't exist before and they were just thinking about setting up the first ever landscape architecture course and 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 so it, it really felt like there was a um a need or or, or a good reason for me to be there <laughs> and <laughs> and uh and i guess i like a challenge a good challenge and 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 uh i ended up um moving to syria um i i fell in love with a with a with a syrian architect and, and we set up a studio together um which which we we grew over a bunch of years and just at the moment where it was starting to stabilize and we were starting to have paying clients, we had decided to only work with local clients just to make our life a bit more difficult on top of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it took a long while, but after two years or so, we, we just managed to, um, you know, have a bunch of paying clients and a, and a bunch of good projects. And, um, at this moment in time, the, the war started. And, mm. and, um, and we didn't have a plan B, but it was obvious after a couple of months that, you know, nobody obviously wanted to continue working and it became, yeah. you know, kind of a security issue. And, and, um, we, I was stranded in, in Beirut together with my wife and we literally did not know what to do until this old friend of mine called, uh, Jules, who used to, you know, run and still today is, is the CEO of Sprint Opera. And uh, Jules at the time um, needed someone to help him grow the business, and and uh, he asked me if I if I want to come to London and 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 join the team and and, and work with them. Yeah. And and I think my first question was like I was very flattered, but I was like, okay, why me? You know, why? I'm not a not really a communication or a, you know film guy. Um, and, uh, and, and I think he said something along the lines of, you know, you know, you always work on complex projects with difficult clients. You know, that's exactly what we do. Yeah. <laughs> so, I like that. Try, try it out. And, and, and back then I thought, you know, I, I, I was up for the challenge and uh, it was lovely to be able to move to London and, um, you know, have a really interesting team and, you know, lovely people to, to work with. Um, but I, I, I thought at the beginning, you know, I'll do this for three years or maybe five. And yeah. then I go back into landscape architecture. And uh, this is now 11 years ago. It's a great story, though. It's a great, uh, great transition from landscape to, you know, to communication and this world. Um, yeah. Interesting. So talk us a little bit about, um, you know, so I guess some people know the story or may, maybe you can give the audience a quick uh overview of like how squint started because it was kind of very architecture um it's very linked to architecture in fact yeah. it was, you know like it's um 
on the about page, you know, it was, it was kind of embedded in, uh, Will, uh, Will Allsop's architecture firm and, uh, kind of is very interlinked with the architecture world. Uh, but it's kind of evolved over the last few years, right? And and mm. now I'd be, you know, like you, you guys are doing all kinds of stuff, not necessarily, you know, architecture based. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it kind of started off, you know, doing visuals and stuff like that for architects. But now, you, you know, are architects your main clients, and how has it evolved uh, from from when you started started there to now? Yeah, and, when 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 I started. 11 years ago, it was, um, you know, a lovely studio within or adjacent to Will's studio. 20 years ago, um, Squint Opera was founded by, by four friends of which three had studied architecture, but, um, they, they didn't want to become architects. And, uh, and one of them is one of Will's sons, Ollie also. And, and I think back at the time, Will, basically offered a bunch of chairs and a desk and said, you know, you can, you can sit in my office and figure out what it is that, you know, you want to do with your lives. And, yeah. um, and, and, and they, they liked the idea of filmmaking. And, uh, and so they started doing super experimental films with Will and, and Will who sadly passed away a couple of years back, but, you know, he, he, in my view was, maybe the f most fearless architect that, you know, was around in the, in the UK at the time. And, and, and he had this beautiful idea that work should be fun. W work should be enjoyable. And, and he yeah. extended that concept to in include the client. So I think one of the reasons why, you know, Will hasn't built a lot maybe is that he would walk away from a project if, it wasn't enjoyable. And, mm. and as you know, very well, a lot of projects are not. Yeah. <laughs> it wants it out yeah. of the honeymoon well, period of projects. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, um, so I really, uh, I was fascinated by, by, by his approach. I knew well, um, from, from before a little bit and, and, you know, he, he made a, you know, a, a big impact on, on me and, and had a big impact on the way I, you know, saw what people like him, I think what they are very good at, they, they just show you that other things are possible and, and that, you know, you can find your own way of exploring, you know, this profession and, and you can basically define your own rules, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, in, in that, in that game. And, and so, you know, in, in some way, you know, Will's DNA of being such a curious mind and, and so much into exploring and, and, uh, uh, playing in some way, you know, there's a, a lovely, um, lovely magazine that just came out in his memory, which is very titled, uh, serious fun. <laughs> that sounds it up quite well. You know, yeah. he, he definitely had some serious fun um uh in his in his studio and 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 so squint opera started um making films around mainly kind of regeneration projects in the uk um yeah. a bunch of wills projects to start with and and will really allowed 
them to be playful and experimental and um and then very quickly i think or at the very beginning you know this this idea was there that at this time architecture communications was really crappy fly throughs you know that's in terms of film you know that's that's what yeah. you could get you know because computers were just at this point animation 3d you know was just starting to be attainable you know at a, at a smaller scale um studio and the quality was just appalling and 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 it was just very generic and 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 so you know i believe that squint really pioneered this idea that you know we we should actually try to figure out you know what is actually the core narrative of this proposition you know what is what is the core vision and and how can we articulate this vision in a compelling narrative and and uh, and how can we do that you know beyond cgi you know so so very early on you know we started to add real characters into into those films i mean first as a narrative and a compelling story but then nobody wants i mean 3d people is maybe probably the worst at the time right i mean you cannot connect with a 3d person it just is is not you know emotionally it's impossible <laughs> to do that and so so the clients didn't ask for it but but squint made a massive effort to add all these other elements to those films that that made them more accessible and 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 i think you know allowed us to connect with the audience you know on a on a different level than than in a, a pure kind of fly through could and and with many things i think it that squint has done you know it was kind of based on this fundamental curiosity that you know anything at this time felt like an opportunity or anything felt interesting so 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 after the first couple of years when when i joined um now we're maybe a 20 20 people and people clients would come to us and they would ask for things that we had never done before like someone would come and say you know can you do an interactive table at the, at the time yeah. and a very new thing and and we never did one but we thought you know sure you know we can we can figure out how to do an interactive table and <laughs> and we always had this belief that if someone asks for it then a it might be fun or it might be interesting to explore but also you know maybe there is a business there maybe there's a maybe this is something that will become something in later down the line and so so squint ventured into many different areas just following those you know requests or ideas or or curiosities yeah and 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 arguably we maybe went a bit too broad at some point you know we were running a barn and event space and started a kids kids television show and you know a lot of things uh we had to rein it in a bit at some point but but i think it's still um you know very key to this business the you know this this ability to explore and to you know constantly adopt and constantly change um so so you know we maybe eight years ago or six eight years ago um when we started doing these interactive installations first for you know cities or, or real estate developers we then made the leap to go into um 
into the cultural world working with museums because we we figured that you know the the museum world also will become more interactive and more more immersive um yeah. you know over over time and and now this is half of our business is is is, is creating immersive interactive experiences for museums and and visitor attractions and this yeah. this goes from you know working I think the first big museum project we did was with the VNA at uh, when, when it was uh, Hollywood costumes was the exhibition um, to, you know, working, doing all of the digital experiential stuff for the visitor experience at Empire State Building, or I think we just yeah, opened yeah. a visitor experience at peak tramways in, in Hong Kong. And, and, and so funny enough at the core, you know, if you want to find a, a, a red, uh, uh, thread that you know goes through all of that. <clears throat> I think at the core, no matter what we do at, at Squint, you know the 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 core problem that we need to solve is that you know someone has a very complex, very complicated project or idea or you know historic event that that they need communicating and and. And then you can kind of triangulate between, you know, the, the the mission, like the topic that you have to communicate, whether this is you know how the first world war started or how this new city will look like, to yeah. to um, you know the audience that that you are talking to. So for some audiences, it's better you do a booklet, or you know others yeah. would you know go with an interactive installation or an app. You know, and 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 then there's budget and timeline, and then and yeah. somewhere within that, you you kind of figure out almost what the best tool is to to communicate, um, you know your your need. And 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 the beautiful thing about Squint today is that, you know, we don't have to sell one thing. You know, it it doesn't matter for the business whether it's a piece of strategic advice, um, a booklet. A book, an app, a film, an image, yeah. or a full immersive experience, or now more and more, you know, we're we're creating, you know, real time uh, experiences in the, in a in a kind of in a virtual twin sense, and 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 so it is really, you know, one of the things that. So you said at the beginning, you know, yes, when we started, our main clients were architects. And, and we did a lot of um, you know projects helping architects to communicate their their projects. Um, but then over time, the the um, it, it shifted. So today we have a bunch of architecture firms that we work closely with and we enjoy working with a lot. But then our main clients are often um, their clients. So so these are city administrations or 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 real estate developers. Um, on the on the architecture side, um, and and you know for for those clients, we can often engage with them from a very early stage. So, you know, Squint went away from selling one-off um, smaller projects like just a film or just a bunch of images or just one app or something. To you know, we managed to build. Longer-term relationships with with a handful of clients who we would stay with for many years, and and we would help them 
at the very beginning of a project, often before they have a, a real project, they maybe just have a, an inkling, they have a site, they have an opportunity, but they need someone to help them articulate this early vision you know, before there's any design and just maybe uh, someone to talk it through with you know, in many cases. But then if you look at the project timeline, every stage from then onwards requires you to communicate with a different audience you know, in a different way. So, so at the beginning, it's maybe an internal exercise to you know, sell the idea internally. And then the next thing is maybe you have to you know, raise a bunch of money or you have to get um, uh, permissions or, or you need the public to buy in or you need stakeholders to be excited about it. And, and so all of those stages until, you know, you, in the end, often, you know, you sell something to someone or, you know, there's some sort of operational mode where you now have to keep the excitement going. Um, but, but each stage requires a different kind of communication and, 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 and it all has to do with, you know, the, the audience that, that you're trying to reach and, and, and the, the kind of context in which you are communicating these projects at those particular moments in the process. Yeah. I guess that means you're, you're, you're pretty tool and technology and, you know, software agnostic, you know, for each one of these things. And I, I was reading, uh, the, the, Mer, the new Mer book the other day. And I think at the beginning, it's like the most, uh, the question that they got asked the most was what rendering software do you use? <laughs> and I'm sure that's a question you've, <laughs> you've been asked uh, many times. Yeah. Um, but uh, maybe to zoom out and, and, you know, not only squint, but the, the Viz industry has had a lot of disruption over, over the years. And for you guys, I, I think that's, um, not so much of an issue because you're, you, you're very, uh, open and agnostic with your tools and technologies that you use. But, um, I thought it'd be interesting to touch on, you know, zoom out into the Viz industry as a whole, mm -hmm. because, and, and I know you've, you've talked about, a you wrote an article, article or something called the death of the, the Viz industry or the architectural Viz industry. And I think, you know, with the rise of, you know, real time rendering, which is, you know, tools like Enscape Twin Motion has, has kind of almost put the visualization process a little bit more back in the hands of, of architects, especially on a day to day basis, you know, and the kind of big images and animations, we, you know, still go to, to firms like, like yourselves, Squint. Um, but then, of course, you've got, the world of game engines and this new world in the metaverse that that has come about. Um, so like the Viz industry has had a lot of disruption. Like, yeah. How do you feel that's, um, that, you know, how do you feel the Viz industry, what's your take on the Viz, Viz industry? And is it a little bit of a precursor to the architecture industry? Because, mm. you know, you can see those same things coming uh, that happens in the Viz industry is coming to the architecture industry with, you know, AI already, you know, we didn't even mention AI as well. And, and mid journey is also affecting both design and visualization, uh, visualization. So, um, what, what's your view on the, on the Viz in industry at the moment for the AEC space? Yeah. 
it's really it's a really interesting time i think you know and and i think it's one of those things where you were maybe able to see this and many you know have talked about this maybe already 10 years ago but <clears throat> it really feels that feels to me like we are now at this you know point of convergence that we have been kind of foreseeing for quite a while now so on one hand it feels quite slow the, the the transformation of the industry on the other hand it's now happening quite fast i think and and yeah. and and <laughs> and, it, and it, it's quite a radical radical change and 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 as you said you know it is it's not just the visualization industry it's the whole industry you know that, yeah. that is going to go through a massive you know radical transformation in my in my view so so you know one way of looking at this and this is maybe takes two minutes to a bit of a longer thought, but when I was thinking about this, you know, over the years, I kind of came to the conclusion that if you want to look at any kind of major transformation in any industry, it kind of makes sense to follow the money, figure out, you know, where, mm -hmm. the, where actually is the money made uh, and what's happening in that part. Um, because most likely that will influence the rest of the of the of the whole process, and so I got very interested a bunch of, a couple of years back into this idea of uh, you know construction changing. So so the way we build um, the changes in the way we are building, I think, is going to completely change the way we design and procure, build and operate. You know, further down the line. Yeah. And what I mean by this is that. There's a bunch of things coming together. And so interrupt me if it doesn't make sense anymore, what I'm talking about, but I'll try. Yeah, so, no, no. So, so, so let's, let's just look at, if you just look at construction, I'm of the opinion, like many others, that the only, you know, plausible future scenario for construction is that we're going to get to a kind of componentized modular yeah. in a um, off-site manufacturing process. And people are, you know, discussing terminologies and, you know, whether these are all the right words, but in principle, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna manufacture components and assemble them in a factory to a size that we can put onto a truck, right? Yeah. And then, and then, and then from that, we, we drive those parts to the site, and then we have an on-site assembly line where we now put these boxes together to create bigger boxes, and then we stack them on top of each other, right? I mean, I'm simplifying, but so 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 if that if that happens, then I think you know we are close to a future where, as a designer, as an architect, I will be, you know doing a sketch on my iPad and let's say, you know, I do a scribbly building, um, early concept sketch on my iPad. And we're going to, I think we're going to have, uh, a layer of ambient computing that, that will run in the background that at a very early stage will already start to figure out, okay, you know, this kind of building, you know, what, what are we looking at in terms of, any parameter that's interesting for you for the design. Yeah. You know, so your carbon footprint, your 
you know, supply chain, your material issues that you might run, timelines, budgets, um, down to, you know, how easy can be componentized this building, you know, what's available in the supply chain. Um, and, and then it, and then the system will make recommendations of to how, how to tweak your, your design to yes. either get it produced cheaper or faster. Um, yeah. and, and so I think the, the, you know, one way of looking at this is that, and this is, I'm generalizing and, you know, sure, um, you know, you can poke holes into this, but, but the one way I, I look at it is that, you know, I, I argue that in the first, the first wave of digital transformation in the built environment, you know, we forced architects and designers to become, you know, kind of, computer operators, you know, we, we, they, we forced them yeah. to learn Rhino and Revit and uh, Grasshopper and, you know, all these things. And, and then we also need them to be the project manager and all these things. And suddenly there's very little time to actually design left, yeah. you know, in your day to, yeah. in your day to day. And, 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 and I hope, or I, I think we have the opportunity to, to make the second wave that we are starting now, the second wave of digital transformation um all about kind of creating tools that allow designers to design again and and to be creative again and yeah. and, and and that that maybe needs to be a bit widened this this understanding of the the role of the of the architect or of the designer because i feel on one hand you know we we will become much more curators where where we're going to have support systems that run in the background that give us options where we can, you know, choose depending on, you know, what we feel is, is the right choice. Um, and, and so the design, the, the process of designing will be, maybe will become much more a process of curation. And then I believe that it becomes more and more important, you know, all the things that you have to do as an architect, which are very much related to aligning with uh, stakeholders and and uh, you know everybody who's involved in the process of making buildings or cities. So this is your skill to mediate, to to translate, to to communicate. Really, you know that that I think will become more and more important because yeah. the, the the complexity of the problem is only going to grow. Right. So we we used to look at everything in the built environment in isolation, right? We, we have these expert silos. We have people who are only looking at buildings or only looking at the energy systems or only mobility or only water, whatever, you know, whatever system. And, and at some point we realized, and, and sorry, and then, and then we, we kind of became very good at these silos. You know, we, we optimized within the silo and, you know, we have expert knowledge, which is super important. You know, we understand what we're doing in you know, when we're building a building or when we're looking at energy systems or mobility or whatever. And, and, and then at some point we realized that there's obviously a very strong relationship between all of them. So, so, so a lot of them are connected. And, and now we're starting to realize that in the future, all of these systems and processes actually have to become circular. So they have to become truly interconnected. So, so someone's waste is someone's material or, or someone's energy. And then this, you know, the, the, these, these, these new 
world. These old challenges, you know, that we are facing, you know, we can we can only solve this question of you know decarbonization or you know generally speaking, you know, the, this question of you know how we can achieve a, a more sustainable presence, you know, on this on this planet. You know, we, we can only achieve that through a truly integrated um, uh, approach. And we are far away from that at the moment in the industry because we are still educating in silos and we are still operating in silos. And, yeah. and, and even if people, and I was on so many, you know, when I was still a landscape architect, you know, and, and even today, you know, I've been part of so many large teams that, you know, would present themselves to the client as an integrated team yeah. where everybody works together. It's all bullshit, right? Because it's like, it's like every architecture firm, their about pages, award-winning, multidisciplinary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and so, so, and so. But, but when it, when it comes down to it, the problem is that, you know, you work with a bunch of, you know, engineers and finance people and, you know, whoever you need to have on that team. And, and when it comes down to, you know, it's very competitive because in the end, we are all competing for one budget and, 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 and people also compete mm -hmm. on, you know, who actually has the last say, who can actually make the decision. So, so we haven't aligned the incentives. You know, I've, I've been on many projects where I, I tried this to have this conversation in the first, uh, first week of a new project uh, when I thought the client was, you know, up for having exploring this thought. And I would introduce this idea. I would say, you know, what if, so at the moment, if a project uh, takes longer, I, as a designer, you know, I get more money. If it, if it is more expensive, I get more money too. You know, so, so maybe these projects take a bit longer and they get a bit more expensive, right? Because yeah. it, it's kind of, you know, human nature. And, and what if we flip this around and we would say, at the beginning of a project, we define like a baseline, like a target, you know, we want, you know, X amount of, you know, the, the, the square meter should cost X and the timeline should be Y and, you know, and, yeah. and we want to try and hit this sustainability, you know, uh, parameter, whatever, or we go for bream, whatever, you know, whatever the targets are, but yeah. we define those targets and make this the baseline. And then we say, okay, if we reach as a joint team, between everybody, if we reach this target, there's a, this is your base fee. This yeah. is what you get. If you exceed your target and you bring it in faster, cheaper, with a higher performance in terms of, you know, sustainability uh, or energy performance or whatever you defined at the beginning, then the team gets more money, you know, because yeah. we're, we're splitting the, the gains. And, and I feel like that's what's missing at the moment. I mean, one of the things that's missing is that the incentives are just not aligned in the, yeah. in the right way mm -hmm. to foster true collaboration and to foster innovation. And then the last problem, and then I will stop talking about problems, but <laughs> the last frustrating problem, I think, is the fact that in the built environment, if you look at how things get financed, and, you know, this is obviously true for any investment. Um, you know, the, this, the industry spent a lot of time managing the risk out of these investments. So if you want to build a residential yeah. building today, there's a very clear 
um, investment logic behind that, right? And and obviously, you know, from a pure kind of investment capital perspective, um, you know, I want to de-risk my investment. Yeah, so, yeah. so we have we have now systems in place that have completely de-risked the investment, you know, which is great for the for the investor, but it it created this situation where we cannot introduce any new elements. We cannot introduce a new material or a new process yeah. or a new system because the moment you try to do that, the financial model will not work anymore because it's a it's a risk management problem where yeah, you can even increase you know, the risk. So yeah, you, you increase the risk yeah. because you don't have 10 years data. Exactly. Then, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so in return, we stick to what we know and everything looks the same. You know, and we, we can't get out of that problem you know, because we, you can only repeat what we already know. Um, yeah. and, and so it's, I'm really struggling to see how we're going to get out of that because we, we definitely need to uh, find a way to build better and you know, more efficient and been yeah. a better performing and, and all of that. And so, and so all of that in my mind is very much connected to this fundamental question of, you know, is creating buildings and cities, is that a, a short-term uh, investment where you cash in the moment that the building is built or mm -hmm. is this actually a long-term commitment? Where, yeah. where you know, you we should actually start to look at these projects as not as you know five to ten year investment horizons, but ten to fifty, and and include the whole life cycle of the yeah. of the building, because then multi generational as you, as you exactly inter intergenerational wealth, right? And then 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 it makes sense. Then then the whole yeah. logic makes sense because then it makes sense to invest a bit more money at the beginning to design better. Yeah. to build better and to maybe introduce, you know, decentralized ways of producing energy or water or yeah. whatever you can yeah. do on your site, because you will get the money back in operations because you are saving money in operations. And if you design better, you know, people will stay longer and you have less headache running the building. And, and at some point you paid for your solar panels and the energy becomes free and, yeah. and, and, and if you design well, then you might have extended the lifespan of the building by 10 years. And that's money right into your bottom line. But it only works <laughs> if you keep the asset and, yeah. and if you really change your business model to, you know, a fully integrated, you know, model that, that looks at it from the beginning until, you know, we are recycling the materials and putting them back into the loop. You know, that, yeah. that, that, that really is a massive shift that needs to happen. But, I completely diverted from the from the question, you know. But maybe going oh, back yeah. to, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a great it's a great you know dovetail to to talk about your your paper and you know so many of the things you've talked about is is been really you know on my mind as well and you know these same kind of ideas and and you know observations that we're seeing in the industry um, and I guess this is kind of what led to you putting this on paper, right? And with your, with your paper, feeding the machines of, uh, loving grace, which is kind of, that was also, you know, one of the many reasons I, <laughs> I wanted to, to invite you on here. Cause I saw you, you posted it the other day. I saw it on uh, LinkedIn and I read through it and I thought it was like a great, I've got it here. It's got it. It's, uh, 
a beautiful like eight pages of distilling this into very concise and understandable you know chapters and many of which we've covered now already but um but yeah, so maybe I should, should I read the first uh, couple paragraphs just for the audience to get a, an idea of it? And then maybe we could continue this because I think this is a great, you know, dovetail to, to what you're saying. Uh, so you released this a couple weeks ago now, right? Yeah. Female Machines of Love and Grace, Saving the Planet, One Simulation at a Time. Uh, the challenges we are facing in the built environment are huge. Hence, we have to radically update our current processes and systems to better design, build, and operate our buildings and cities. Today, we are happy if our cities are not bad for us. In the future, buildings and cities have to become productive, and we will measure their success on how good they are for us. Economic pressures combined with climate change avoidance and adaptation strategies will change the face of our cities and landscapes. Strategies for decarbonizing our existence are urgently needed on a global scale. And that's the first paragraph, and you basically break it down into each of these chapters, which we've we've discussed on a little uh, a little bit already. Um, I'll put this also in the link to the video, so people can also uh, read this. I highly recommend it because I think it just sums up, uh, you know, some very very astute observations of what's going on in the industry. So, so what kind of led you to putting this on paper and and publishing it now and uh you know what what was your kind of drive to put it out there i guess it's frustration <laughs> uh it's uh yeah it's kind of it comes from me from a quite a negative no but no 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 but it's a you know i think i have both right I, on one hand you know i having worked in the built environment for you know 20 years now um I, I often have, you know, touched the, the limits of, you know, what is, what is possible and, and, you know, often found myself in this position where, you know, computer says no and everybody agrees, you know, we should, we should be doing it, you know, and the, the client agrees and everybody's up for it. But then, you know, when it comes down to it, um, you know, it's not happening. And, and so fundamentally, you know, the, the fact that we have, we have split the process in these two distinct phases where there's a design phase where, you know, we, we develop a vision and a design and come up with a great uh, concept. And, um, we, you know, and then when that phase finishes, then, you know, we, we, we give it, we give the idea to, let's say a contractor and, and suddenly the, and suddenly it's all about buildability, uh, budgets and and timelines, right? And and that is really the the Excel sheet. Suddenly, is the is a designer uh, of this project, and and that's why a lot of things don't look the way they were <laughs> designed because we 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 have split this in, in into these two phases. And 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 I you know I really very strongly feel that one part of the solution is that we have to um, combine these two phases into into one, and we have to kind of tackle those problems that we now are deferring to a later stage and putting onto the contractors or the client's desk. Um, you know, we have to deal with them at the beginning when we're designing because we can, and I mean, big is such a good example, you know, for, uh, I was, you know, when, when, when big started, you know, and, and correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but you know, the, the way I, um, 
I see the, the, the origins of Bake is very much rooted in this idea that, you know, the first projects that, that you built, they, they didn't have great budgets and, and they were, you know, yeah. partly social housing and, and there were a lot of constraints, you know, and, but, but you were aware of those constraints and you, and you worked with them and, and, and you, you head on kind of dealt with it and, and yeah. created the most, you know, until today, most iconic kind of first three, four projects. But, yeah. but I think it was a mixture of, you know, you had a, you had a good client and, you know, you were able to, at the same time, you know, just not ignore these challenges, but work with them and work with the constraints. And yeah. I think that's, that's what, what as, as designers, I think that's really the, the mission is to embrace all of those constraints and not be afraid of the, you know, the business model and the, the numbers and, and the engineering side and the performance. But yeah, it's, it's, you need to, yeah, head on, deal with it. It's a point that not a lot of people get about the origins of, of big, you know, you think, um, you know, like a, a, these stock techs just happen to meet some really uh, rich people that want to do everything. But exactly. I think um, one, one story that's quite interesting of those early buildings, the VM house um, that has two quite interesting features. One is the apartments are duplexes, which means that you only have a, uh, a corridor every two floors. And thus from a development's perspective, that's you're halving the amount of non-sellable area in the building, right? So that that's an interesting little design feature. And now each of those apartments has this really beautiful double height space, et cetera, et cetera. The other one, which was became the icon, in fact, it's right behind me there, I'm just realized, as I'm talking about it, that the balconies on the, the projects were originally like rectangles and it had two kind of um, cables going back into the facade to, to keep it up. And uh, I think that, you know, the budget was like for the balconies was, you know, 50% too high. It was, it was almost double what they, what they, what they needed. So they decided to just take away one side of it and make the, the uh, balconies triangular in order to meet that budget. And that became the icon of this very picture right here. So yeah, a lot of people don't understand that the, the early projects were, you know, they were creating something incredible out of nothing, you know, it was like, it was a, a very affordable um, budgets and developments. And yeah, exactly. And, and I really believe that, you know, this is the, when having had the pleasure to work a little bit alongside Martha Schwartz, you know, this was a landscape architect who, you know, most of her iconic, iconic projects are on top of parking garages and had almost no budget. <laughs> so <laughs> she had to, she had to use, you know, cheaper materials that were not used commonly yeah. in landscape architecture. She had to find creative ways of, of dealing with this. And, and, and I really believe that, you know, this is when creative minds thrive is, you know, when we are dealing yeah. with constraints, right? The worst thing you can give a creative is a completely open brief and unlimited budget, you know, it's never going to yeah. yeah. lead to anything good. But, you know, I feel like, you know, this is, this is the task at hand is, you know, we have to, embrace all those challenges and we have to, um, you know, uh, get our, wrap our heads around it. And then I am really quite optimistic around, you know, uh, this, this second wave of digital transformation where, you know, tools will help us, digital tools will help us 
to deal with this complexity. And, and this will happen on, on many different layers and at different levels. I think on, on one hand, we are definitely, we have arrived in a world where we can have a real time, you know, 3D model in a, in a game engine and whether this is, you know, Epic Games, Unreal Engine or, you know, what, what NVIDIA's Omniverse, you know, these, these systems yeah. are just getting better, um, you know, uh, at, a, at a rapid speed. And, and, you know, so, so there is this kind of backbone infrastructure, if you like, you know, that it is almost like, I, I would think of it as a, a platform that we can plug in, you know, all the different tools that we need. But there's yeah. this one moment of truth, a bit what the promise was uh, with BIM, you know, for, yeah. from, an engineer, from an engineering perspective, right? But, yeah. but now I think we, we are, we're really getting somewhere where, um, so now we can have this integrated uh, 3D model, which is this one moment of truth where, where I can plug in all the different uh, simulations and all the different, you know, data sources that are relevant, that are informing my, my design. And then, you know, we're seeing a rapid increase in, uh, you know, what I call support algorithms, you know, that, that are just made to, you know, quickly test an assumption and, and, and quickly figure out, you know, what are the, you know, how can I prove whatever the structural grid or, uh, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. ventilation or, or, or light. Yeah. So, so, so I think these, you know, on one hand, there's a, I think that we are, we now have platforms that, you know, I believe have to be open and, and they have to be uh, able, you know, to accommodate any kind of, you know, plugin or, you know, tool uh, yeah. that, that, that we want to add to them. And then, and then we have, you know, a bunch of, um, algorithms that, that will help us navigate that. And the problem with algorithms, just maybe one, one uh, short, exploration on that topic is was was quite funny for me the maybe 10 years ago when you know the first engineering firms realized that you know algorithms are actually going to you know have an impact on on their on their work and on their on their business i think the first there was an euphoria and everybody thought you know this is going to be amazing we have you know 30 years of data we have all this data you know, we're going to just, yeah. you know, feed all this data and, and, and we're going to create all these amazing algorithms. And then everybody realized a bit later that, you know, just having all this data doesn't give you, get you anywhere, you know, because it's yeah. all unstructured data. It's all, you know, it's not curated data sets. And right, so right. you can't actually train algorithms with these data sets that we have, broadly speaking. Uh, and, and what you need to do is, is, uh, get your best engineers to, to structure this data and to curate it properly, because otherwise mm -hmm. you, you know, put shit in and get shit out. I mean, it just, it just, it just, we're not, we're not quite there yet that we can just grow, you know, all this unstructured data uh, at it. And, and so now I think what, what we are going to see um, is tools that will generate structured data while they are used so, so in, in the day-to-day, -day, you know, design process, and then over time, you know, these support algorithms will, will learn, you know, from, from this input and, yeah, and, yeah. and become really smart assistants. And, and it's yeah. a bit like a design crit, you know, that, that we have, 
in, in universities where, you know, you're just going to have a, a clippy. <laughs> yeah. I, <can't. laughs> I keep, I keep going on about uh, a clippy. Mr. clippy of BIM or something. Yeah. It would be, like it will be the first introduction that tells you, Hey, this is not a building rigs uh, friendly, but, but yeah, you're, you're, you know, it's that kind of essence of yeah. using these tools and technologies to automate the things that we don't necessarily that, that takes a lot of our time that we don't necessarily have to, you know, spend so much time on if we can automate that would free us up to actually do what, where we make the most amount of impact, which is, you know, creative design thinking and, and problem solving in a, on a creative level. Exactly. And I think that's, that's where, you know, uh, a couple of your chapters t touch on, on this subject of, of like, um, what do you call it? Uh, um, uh, ambient computing to help creative create again. Yeah. I think, and yeah. you do see this now with, with the rise of mid journey and, and Dali and, and this kind of stuff is like, um, you know, now you don't need to be able to code to use these things. It's yes, you, it's, it's good to be able to, cause you can kind of get under the hood a little bit, but you know, you can now, generate buildings and, and use AI with no coding experience. It's, it's yeah, just, yeah. And the interesting thing is that we're just at the beginning, right? At the moment yeah. it's playful and it's artistic and you know, you can, it's, it is, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's almost like, oh, this, this is a fun little thing, but then exactly. you know, what's on the horizon is, is very different. Very different because once we have those, you know, structured data sets to, to feed into it, then, you know, this becomes extremely useful you know, as a, as a, as a design tool. And, and, and so, so I, I have a, another little obsession, you know, we, so I'm a, I'm a landscape architect, right. And, and, you know, if, if you and I would be to design a park together, I mean, what, what would we do, right? We would, we would use three, three things, you know, of, uh, we would communicate using three tools, you know, so we would talk about it, right. I would mm -hmm. say, I like this park in Barcelona and, yeah. uh, and you, 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 we talk back and forth. And we, so we, we, we use voice, we use words, you know, which arguably are code, you know, since natural language processing has evolved a fair bit, you know, the, you can look at, think of it as a kind of code input, us, us talking about it. And then, and then maybe we show each other reference images. Yeah. And I would say, I, I look at a bit, a bit like this. I like this edge or this bench or whatever this this geometry and you show me some images i show you some images and we kind of circle in into you know having you know, some sort of understanding about the, the the style um and then maybe we do very simple sketches like super basic sketches in you know, a very mm -hmm. big pen you know a bit like this a bit like that and by just pinging this back and forth between us talking about it reference images simple sketches we go deeper into the design and, and as we progress, we'll be detailed in our minds. And at some point we can, we can build a, a detailed 3d model of the park yeah. that, that we want to design together. And now, and now we have it designed, you know, in, yeah. in, in 3d and, and, and so, and then we can run the simulations and figure out, you know, how to optimize whatever the drainage and the, yeah. all that stuff. And, and so this exact process, I, in my lifetime, you know, I believe I will be able to go through this process 
with a with a machine. I can have that communi that that con yeah. conversation with a with a computer, and I can say, you know, and and we already have all the elements there, right? There's there's speech input for game engines, um, yeah. so you can control game engines by talking to them. Um, you know, there there is there is um, uh, tools that are interpreting your uh, you know, simple sketches, uh, and 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 there's tools that are um, uh, matching reference images to to sketches, you know, all the gun yeah. gun stuff, and 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 so I feel like you know that is super exciting because in theory. You know, we should be able to, um, you know, manage, you know, much better, you know, these really complex um, environments that we have to design in, yeah. um, be, because we actually have a much better insight into, uh, you know, the reality that we are dealing with, um, and 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 the tools to kind of quickly iterate and and quickly test, and and yeah. you know, this whole idea of virtually testing an environment before we we physically build it i mean that's really also what you know at, at screen opera i mean that's really where you know most of our work today is is focused on on building those you know uh, virtual twins I'm, I'm still struggling to find the right word you know so it's you know so, maybe it's a digital experiential twin yeah, like yeah. yeah. <laughs> become a bit but, of a buzzword already. The digital twin. <laughs> yeah, and and it's maybe too engineering heavy, you know, the the word. But anyway, the 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 the, the idea is is a you know it's a somewhat old idea in a, in a way that you know, but now we are actually able to for the first time I think in 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 history we are able to you know truly you know test designs virtually. Before we built them, and and this, yeah. I had this moment. You know, I mean, we've been playing around with this idea. Started maybe six, seven years ago, um, and you know, it was actually. I think I was on a call with Bjarke back then, and we were working on a project together. And the design had just changed, and he was on a video call in in Copenhagen, and I was in London, and. And he was trying to explain to me how the design had changed. And, and he did a little sketch on a piece of paper and he tried to show me on the camera and he's like, it's a bit like this, right? And this was maybe seven, seven years ago. And we were both like, somehow this feels wrong, right? This cannot be the way we discuss spatial conditions in our, in, in our day and age. And, and then we started um, at Squint, we applied for a bit of funding um, and, and we started a little research project to figure out whether we can build a virtual uh, collaborative workspace in in real time 3D, um, which yeah. then years later turned into what's now Spaceform, um, yeah. which was which was kind of like the last port of call I wanted to touch on because that's that's where you and I kind of met really is is the the birth of Spaceform and our collaboration with. Uh, us and and what you guys did at Spaceform, and I was I was going to get you to tell that story because I thought it was uh, a <laughs> that was the story that, that was created uh, Spaceform. <laughs> Absolutely, and 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 it's a it, it, this was this was a one really important moment, and then later, you know, when we when we were building the first prototype, when you know we we realized that you know when if you are designing 
digital experiences in physical spaces like we do in the exhibition world, right? Then it's really complicated to explain to a client what it is, what the difference is between, you know, the content on this screen size or that screen size and, you know, this content versus that content and, you know, how it will feel differently in the space. And, and at some point we started to use this real-time environment to mock up our digital designs, you know, for those exhibition spaces. And, and the moment we, we allowed a client to be in that space and to, and, and we, and they could stand there in a one-to-one -one scale and we could flip, you know, this screen versus that screen or this content versus that. And, and suddenly, you know, they felt like they could actually make a, um, a better informed decision. And, yeah. and I think that's the, that's the key point is like, you know, non-technical people can make better decisions now because they can virtually experience those spatial conditions yeah. before we built them. Right. And, and that's just mind blowing, I think, because what this means is that on one hand, I mean, it's great with clients because they actually feel much more secure when they're making a decision because they actually feel like they tested it virtually and they experienced it yeah. properly. But also you can extend this to things like public participation, right? Where, where suddenly I'm of the opinion that we are all spatial sensors and, and um, we all have the ability to sense spatial conditions. Like I enter a space for the very first time, I immediately have a feeling and in that moment, yeah, yeah. I form my opinion, right? And and so arguably, the most important thing is how people feel in these spaces that we create, and and yeah. and that's you know the moment someone feels it, that's kind of when the success or the failure of this project gets defined, you know, by that yeah. emotion. Because then I form an opinion and I tell my friends, and you know, it's either you know it's a success or <laughs> people don't like it. And, and so, so, you know, if, if that's at the core of everything, then, you know, maybe we can use these simulation, you know, technologies and, and, you know, these real-time environments to really allow people to, you know, have a much more eye-to-eye -eye discussion, like allow non-technical people to have yeah. a, a more kind of level discussion around, you know, the, the dimension of this room, whether it's a, you know, four meter height or six meter, what is the difference, yeah. you know, or, and, and, and it is just so, you know, I think it's really amazing, you know, to, I've been in many public consultation meetings, um, where, you know, you always feel the same way. It's like, you're presenting a non-technical people who didn't study architecture and many architects struggle, you know, to do this exercise, but but you are, you're, you're presenting something in a 2D format, you know, on a yeah. plans and sections and images, and maybe you have great renderings and you have a great film and, you know, all of that. But, but then you, you expect people to be able to imagine themselves in that space yeah. and imagine how it would feel, you know, that's just impossible, you know, for most. And, and, yeah. and, and so, and so it's just not, you know, you're not really getting any valuable feedback because you, you haven't empowered 
the the people you're showing it to to actually you know have an opinion you know they they can't you know, yeah. in most cases and and now this is different where anybody can jump into these environments and 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 you can feel okay when i stand here at this corner you know this is the difference between this being a five-story building or a 50-story building and this is how the shadow looks like at noon and this is how it looks like in winter or when it rains or yeah. <laughs> all this is happening in in real time right and and so i really feel like this is a we're just at the beginning of something and i don't know what to call this you know it's, i don't know you know it's it's a complicated topic because you know the the the, the role of the designer um you know is is an important one in my opinion in the sense that you know you want to also push the boundaries and you want to create solutions that you know people maybe were not able to imagine but yeah. but to but to have a more integrated uh design process where we actually tap into the the spatial intelligence that all of us carry in us in my opinion can only be a good thing yeah yeah no i think there's um you know there's some really interesting there's there's a lot of interesting points there of like uh um you know so much of the stuff that's in your paper and and this was you know this is kind of the the long format uh explanation of what space form is right and i'll i'll also put in the link and i'll uh put up some some little videos of what the current version of space form uh looks like but uh yeah this is this is one of your other endeavors that you know you and i have, have worked on together a bit and um you can really see that in the tool like the the future we're, we're at this point where all these things are conversion, the, the game industry, you know, AI, um, you know, a few things, blockchain, we haven't even mentioned blockchain, mm. but that's coming in. <laughs> that's in there as and, well. Digital no. simulations, you know, the Omniverse, I think we, we briefly mentioned the Omniverse, but that's another one. If, if those of you that are listening that haven't heard about NVIDIA's Omniverse, that's one that, you know, is, is mind blowing in itself we're at a super interesting point where like all these things are converging right now. Yeah. And as you said, with, when we talk, touched on the, you know, AI mid journey, all that kind of stuff is, it's literally just getting going and it's, it's feels like it's going to move very quickly. Um, but I think it, it is a really interesting and that's why, you know, it's not just about the viz industry or the architecture industry. It's, it's, all of these things as a whole is, is it's a really interesting time. And I think we're going to see a lot of disruption in this space. There's so many other uh, chapters we could uh, touch on on, yeah. your, on your paper, but I'll, I'll put it in the link and I think it's great. I highly recommend uh, everyone that's listening to read through it. It's only eight, eight pages and it's uh, really, really beautifully written and, and easy to understand. Maybe as a, as a, as a kind of, leaving point is you know to to young architects listening and and architects listening that are kind of you know uh excited but maybe also a little bit nervous about all these things what do you think um what 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 advice would you give to to young architects or you know either architects that are graduating soon or think or you know architects that are thinking about starting their own practice um what what kind of you know nuggets of advice would you give them and and what mm. kind of things are you also ex uh, super excited about it can be something specific like you know the omniverse or or something uh 
general. Um, I'm I'm generally excited about you know too many things. That's very fair to say, but but uh, you know the the and that is maybe also the you know the core message I think is that every phase. So so my in my in my mind, it, it works like this: It's like okay, and there's massive challenges that we have to overcome in the built environment. You know, there's environmental challenges, there's economic challenges, um, and there's a lot of moving parts. And, and you know, what, what, on one hand, you know, this can be scary. On the other hand, you know, this, this is also means that there's massive opportunities. You know, if you start yeah. thinking about, if we are in any way serious about trying to decarbonize our presence on this planet, then everything has to change. Like everything has to change, like every material, every process, every system. And, and that is, I think, super exciting because it's about time for things to change. You know, that we, 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 so, so I think the, the thing that works the best, I think, is to really try to explore as many things as possible and then listen to yourself and figure out you know, what you're personally most excited about. And, and yeah. this might be something that is maybe not in on walk or maybe, you know, not, not everybody's thing, but, but I think the, the key thing, you know, if you're starting your career is, is very much about, you know, you have to be comfortable in that topic and, and you have to be excited about it and you cannot be, you know, excited about it because someone else is excited about it. And, 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 and it's finding that thing that resonates with you. And I think the, the beautiful thing is, and that had, that's what drew me to, you know, landscape architecture in the first bit, but the same with architecture. I think the beautiful thing is that you can find these things on every, in every scale. And, and so this could be almost on a molecular kind of material level, you know, there's so much exciting stuff happening when you think about, you know, regenerative materials, um, you know, from mycelium to hemp to, you know, whatever, you know, anything that you can imagine that can grow fast, you know, we should try to figure out if we can 3D print it or, you know, quickly yeah, yeah. Uh, manufacture something from it and what the, so there's a lot happening on the kind of really building block material kind of level. Uh, down uh, all the way up to, you know, systems and processes of, of how we're going to co-create, how are we going to share IP, how are we going to incentivize, you know, align, align incentives, you know, yeah. how are we going to educate in the, in the future, you know, how do universities have to change, you know, and, and everything in between, you know, and, and, and I really, I really feel, um, you know, unbelievably excited about the time that we are in now because, you know, this every, every challenge that we are facing equals a massive opportunity at the same time. Yeah. And we just have to find our place in all of that and then, and then play to our strength and, you know, figure out where we can have the most impact. Um, yeah. and the, which is a very personal decision in the end. I think that's a, a beautiful way to conclude uh, to conclude, conclude the podcast, and it's it's also you know the conclusion to your uh, I think uh, excitement amongst the people who will literally build our future. And I think you're right. It's um, you know whilst there is a lot of change and a, a lot of 
things going on right now. Um, there's a massive amount of opportunity in an industry that has a huge amount of disruption that, that uh, positive disruption that, that is capable of. Uh, so I think we're in a, a super interesting time for architects. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is, um, it's almost like there's a backlog, you know, there's, there's this, there's this graph, right. That you can draw. If you compare all industries on this planet, how they manage to become, you know, more efficient and more productive over time. And, you know, the, 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 I mean, the, the poster chart is the, you know, automotive, you know, when you can say, you know, how car production has, has become so much more efficient over time. And then, yeah. but if you map everything that humans ever have done, um, on an industrial scale, um, you can, you will get a curve that, you know, generally has improved, you know, our, our performance. And then you map construction against that. And that's the only thing that managed to get a little bit worse <laughs> over 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> so. I it's insane. That's a, a, quote, a quote I keep using is I, I read somewhere a few, you know, a year ago now that the construction industry is one of the few industries to decline in efficiency yeah. uh, over the last few decades. It's like, that's mad. mad. It, is, it is really mad. And that's why there's so many opportunities there. And this is also why, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, Big, I think, has started the Neighbor, uh, you know, another project yeah. maybe to put in the list, you know, uh, where, you know, we're rethinking you know, the, the way things are, are, are built and operated. And, and I think that there's another interesting question there, maybe the last one um, that is you know, interesting to think about is this question of, you know, and I'm generalizing, but you could almost argue that through this ability to mass customize and to, you know, have this, um, you know, rapid prototyping and, 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 uh, modular construction or whatever you want to call it. Um, what also, you know, could happen is that we could, we, we start to see architecture, um, almost like a, like a product, um, uh, buildings like a product and then, and then citizens become almost customers of that product. But in the, in the, in the, in a, in a sense, you know, what, what that means is that it also means that the end user is so if I, any product that gets designed and developed at this moment in time constantly runs through, you know, close feedback loops and it's an iterative process. It's never finished, right? But it always gets improved. And then there's a new version that comes out next year, which is, you know, lighter, cheaper, better, whatever. Yeah. And, and, and we haven't seen these cycles of, uh, of innovation or improvement in, in the built environment at all. But I think we might be at the beginning of a similar process where we will, we can, we can allow customers, people who are buying or, or renting apartments or office space to first, we can almost co-design with them because they can virtually test you know, in these platforms and they can virtually be part of this design process. Um, and then once, you know, we, we agree what is going to get built, then, you know, we can, we can measure the performance of the as built unit. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then, and then we can go back to it next year and, and, uh, you know, learn from it and, 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 and 
build the next iteration in a better way. And, yeah. and so really learning from, from, uh, you know, our, our, uh, our past, which is something we just have not done, um, enough at all. I mean, if you, yeah, it's, it's almost taboo in, it as is. An architect, right. It's like, uh, we're done. And, we, we only design bespoke stuff and then it's, uh, you know, we throw it away and you can't do that again because it's like, you know, that idea is done. It's, it's, is, it's mad. It's crazy. And, it's mad. And we've already talked about it. You see like when that big or Zaha or something posts a project, you often see comments that people are like, Oh, it looks so Zaha. It looks so big as though like, uh, you know, you have to reinvent your, your approach or style like, like every time. But then you wouldn't say that if you saw a, a new Ferrari driving by, you wouldn't be like, oh, another bloody red Ferrari. Like, yeah, but, but it's also the other the other example I think is like research, right? If you if you think of it as a as a as a discipline, as a scientific discipline, you know, which it is to a degree, I think where you know you would also argue that a researcher would never just neglect all the other research that's out that's out there, but but you yeah. you yeah. build on top of it. And, and yeah. that's the whole point because otherwise it'll never get better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so in, in some way, you know, the, there's a utopian kind of future vision, I think, where, you know, what if we could open source, you know, all this knowledge, you know, that, that yeah. is in architectural practices. And there have been yeah. attempts like WikiHouse and, you know, a bunch of other, you know, uh, smaller attempts to, to try and create this shared knowledge space, but, I find it just ridiculous that any architect, you know, we should never be, nobody needs to draw a window detail. You know, there's, I'm sure yeah. we have drawn enough window details on this planet. You know, like we just have <laughs> a, a, a library of all window. <laughs> and maybe if someone comes up with a new way of drawing a detail, you know, there has to be a system where, you know, this can be, you know, get the, the top of the pile. But, but in principle, <laughs> you know, it feels like we are not, we're losing, we're missing a trick by not sharing, you know, this, this knowledge and, yeah. and, and, and not building on top of it and, and, and really encouraging people to, to use it and, and, and to, and to build on top of it. And I think the core to that problem, and this is not just in the, you know, architecture industry, but it's a, it's a all creative industries. I think, you know, the, 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 the key to that issue is um, uh, a way to share the IP. And, and that's when, you know, I do hope that, you know, uh, a, a blockchain technology, you know, might play a, a small part in that, you know, mm -hmm. where we can actually track everybody's contribution on the public ledger and then we can allocate value to this contribution. And therefore, you know, there's, there's a, there's a shared incentive in yeah. kind of collectively improving solutions. Um, that's, that's super interesting. Yeah. Let's see. It's definitely not going to get boring. Yeah, in, uh, for sure. Next 10 years. Uh, well, um, no, this has been super interesting. And thank you so much for, for writing this paper and uh, publishing it. I think it's, 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 uh, it's great. We'll definitely uh, repurpose it. Uh, sorry, republish it. Um, and I think it also to touch on that knowledge sharing, that's, that's very much why we started, uh, ATN is to yeah. share knowledge around, you know, for us, it's, it's architecture, technology, a bit of entrepreneurship. And like I said, talk about these, uh, these subjects and, 
and share things. So uh, I know our audience is going to really enjoy this conversation. And um, yeah, thank you very much for, for joining us. Maybe to just let uh, the audience know where's the best pace, place to reach out if they want to, um, you know, talk to you or, or get in touch. Uh, we can put in your, your LinkedIn, LinkedIn is, profile. Yeah, and, LinkedIn, is kind of yeah. LinkedIn is good. Um, yeah, perfect. We'll put and, that in the link below along with the, the paper. Otherwise, um, yeah, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. No, thank you for having me. It was really fun. I, let's continue this conversation soon. For sure, for sure we will. Well, um, yeah, thank you once again. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another podcast. We're not sure who's gonna, who it's going to be yet, but it's, uh, it'll be interesting. Um, but for now, stay tuned, and uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see you on the next one. And thanks again, Jan. Cheers. Cheers, cheers.